0: Great things are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better, like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. Blog Talk Radio.
1: Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascara. This morning, Next on the Tee is former U.S. Open and British Open champion and former International Ryder Cup captain, Tony Jacklin. Also Next on the Tee is former PGA Tour pro, Bob Friend Jr. So as always, sit back, relax, and enjoy another edition of Next on the Tea with your host, Chris Mascaro.
0: Chris, it's
1: all yours.
2: Thank you, Joe
0: Janusa. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Next on the Tea. I am your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I'm very honored to be joined by two great golfers. First up here in a moment is going to be Bob Friend, Jr. Bob had a very successful run on the Hogan and Nationwide Tours. A little bit later, we're going to be joined by two-time former major champion and member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, Tony Jacklin. But before we get started, I want to kick off the show by saluting our military personnel listening in on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We also want to thank those of you who serve in every branch of public service. Thank you for doing what you do every day to protect our freedom and our liberty. We truly appreciate the sacrifices you make. Our sincere thanks as well to Dennis Farrell, Stephen Lee, and all the folks at Armed Forces Radio. It's an honor to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org and clicking on the sports link that you're going to find on the bottom right-hand side of the home page or on the radio link that you'll find in the upper right-hand corner. Also be sure to give those guys a follow on Twitter, at the AFRN the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me is my first guest, Bob Friend, Jr. He's from God's country, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as am I. uh, He played on the uh, Ben Hogan Tour, now the Nationwide Tour, and on the PGA Tour uh, from 1990 to 2003. Had five top ten finishes his rookie year on the Hogan Tour. He won the 1991 Fort Wayne Open. He had five top ten finishes in 1994 and recorded three more in '97. If you're like me and a baseball fan, and you're from the Pittsburgh area, you're going to remember Bob's father, who played in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966, mostly with the Pirates, and was a key member of their 1960 World Series championship team that beat the New York Yankees. Bob can now be heard broadcasting on the Back Nine Network on Sirius XM, as well as co-hosting a local radio show that can be heard all over West Virginia called Tea to Green, Uh, Plus, he's the uh, director of operations for uh, Pikewood National Golf Course in Morgantown, West Virginia. And if you haven't gone on the site and you haven't seen that, that is one fantastic layout, and I look forward to chatting with him. Morning, Bob. Thanks for being next on the tee with me.
1: Well, Chris, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and I uh, I, I want to mirror your comments regarding our military and all our service members. Uh, Thank you so much for everything that you do. Uh, providing liberty, the blanket of liberty and freedom that we all live under, and allowing guys like you and me to have normal jobs and not be worried about uh, the the bad guys banging down the door. (laughs)
0: That's right. Zabal, I want to start at the beginning, actually. now You came along a few years after the Pirates won the uh, World Series back in 1960, but do you have memories of your dad pitching in the major leagues?
1: Well, my dad, uh, as you said, uh, pitched from 51 through 66 for the Pirates. I was born in 63, so I was only three years old when he retired. Um, You know, he was, as you said, he was a key member of that 1960 World Series team. He was actually named named, uh, 1960 National League Comeback Player of the Year. He he finished runner-up in the Cy Young in 1958. Had a terrible 59 and then 60. Uh, was named National League Comeback Player of the Year, and you know I missed all of that. Uh, but what I do know, and what I do remember, um, is that when I got a little bit older, my father, my father had retired. He was uh, right after baseball. He was Allegheny County Controller, which is the big county that uh, holds Pittsburgh and the surrounding suburbs. Uh, he was Allegheny County Controller for two terms, and then uh, was in the insurance brokers business from '76 to 2001. But when uh, you know, I was a teenager, he used to play in a lot of old-timers games, and so I used to go with him. And so I had the opportunity to meet all of the greats. I met Satchel Paige, wow. Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra, yeah. Hank Aaron, um, Harmon Killebrew, you, know, you name them, that, that, that played really in the golden era of baseball. Um, I had the opportunity to meet with him. And uh, wow. you know, the neat thing was, a quick story, this is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. ni- 1956, my, father, my father's first All-Star game. Um, he he struck out Mantle, Barra, and Williams. And the interesting one was Williams. He had uh, there were runners on the corners, and he had a full count, uh, two outs. And my father threw him a curveball, and he struck him out. And wow. 20 years 20 years later, going to an old timers game in Arlington, Texas. We flew from Pittsburgh to Atlanta, and then Atlanta to Dallas. This was before Dallas became a big hub for Delta. And Mm -hmm. we we're in Atlanta and we're waiting in the gate area and all the old guys are starting to come in here and here comes Ted Williams. He had not seen my father since the 1956 All Star Game, and the first thing he he approaches my father, he sticks out his hand and shakes it. Doesn't even say hello. Doesn't say anything to him, except I still can't believe you threw me a curveball. And so I (laughs) sat there and I'm watching I'm watching the splendid splinter talk to my dad about how my dad you know gave him a K uh throwing the number two at him. I thought that was pretty neat. But uh my dad's great. He's uh he's eighty three, he's hilarious. I I live about five minutes away from my parents and uh I've got three kids and my my kids and I have a a great deal of interaction with my parents. I play golf with my dad probably once or twice a week or once once or twice a month and um he's in great health and as he says he's got all new pitching parts. He's got a brand new left knee and right hip and a right shoulder. So the Pirates are probably gonna give him a try out, (laughs) uh You know, pretty That's sure, but uh, yeah, it was it was neat. It was very neat growing up. Um, you know, being the being the son of the of the pirate pitcher, and uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I imagine that since uh, I was a little kid watching my dad and my dad being the limelight, this that and the other is probably where I got the idea at an early age that I wanted to do something similar to that. And uh, when I was a kid, I played everything. I played baseball. I wrestled. I played golf. Um, I played hockey. I played football. And then when I was uh, when I was thirteen, really started getting into the game of golf. And then when I was fourteen, um, you know, it was really when I decided that was going to be my life's
0: path. Yeah. So t- talk a little bit about that. You know, what what was what was it about golf that peaked? your you say at thirteen years old, was you, did you play with your father? I mean, how did that get going?
1: Well, uh, I've been fortunate um, or blessed, I should say. My father um, joined Oakmont Country Club in Pittsburgh in nineteen seventy two. And I really wow. wasn't playing. I really, yeah, I know. I really wasn't playing golf much. Um, I was more into baseball and football, really much, and really in the in the football. I really loved the, the physical contact of football. And um, I started get, taking lessons uh, at a at a relatively early age, but didn't really start playing until I was thirteen. At that time, and still to this day, actually, my two boys are actually out caddying at Oakmont this morning. Um, Uh, members' kids are allowed permitted to caddy. They're treated like all the other caddies, and they have to wait in the bullpen and everything else. And I started caddying when I was 12, and then I really started kind of really having a fascination with the game. I started really working hard when I was 13, and and the kicker for me, and what really changed the the seminal moment, I would guess, in in my life was I held the 1978 PGA Championship at Oakmont. Um, And I I got it back, because most at that time, most of most of the players on tour uh, used club caddies. Um, it wasn't a rule, but most of the guys used club caddies at the time. They used the local caddies. So yeah. there was a big lottery, and I got a lottery, and I got I got a club professional. He was not much of a player. His name was John Bonella. He was a club professional from Olathe, Kansas. Wonderful man. But the interesting thing was that he was boyhood friends with Tom Watson. And when I when he arrived at the club on Sunday afternoon, I introduced myself to him, and I'm going to be catting for you this week. And he said, well, I said, I'm, I'm not much of a player. He said, I qualified through the National Club Professional Championship. I finished in the top 50. At that time it was top 50. Now it's top 25. And uh, he said, but I, the treat is, he said, we're going to play our practice rounds with Tom Watson and Andy North on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Wow. Now, Andy North was a 1978 U.S. Open right. champion, and Watson was the best player in the world. And so I thought, well, oh, that's going to be pretty neat. And so Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, for those three days, I was inside the ropes walking shoulder to shoulder with the best player in the world and watching Watson hit it and everything else. And I remember Monday, I, my guy missed the cut. Um, he shot 87-83, uh, hard golf wow. course, but it, he, was, it was a little bit, he was a little bit overmatched by the golf course. But, it, again, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman. And I remember Monday morning after the term was all over, my father was, you know, his suit on, he was ready to go to work he said, so what would you think about this week? And I just said, that is what I'm going to do. I said, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen in my life. And I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And um, I've been blessed with tremendous parents, my mother and my father. And I've had the full support of my parents and also my sister. And um, I worked, I outworked everybody. I mean, that literally is what it is. It's one of those things where my father was was a workhorse for the Pirates. He pitched 12 years without missing a start and uh, always instilled in me a tremendous work ethic. And I, my father constantly, constantly asked me, you know, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? And I would, I literally would get, I'd get out to Oakmont in the morning. Um, I'd caddy at 7.30 in the morning. I would be done caddying 11.30, 12. I would go and I would grab my bag of the junior locker room and I would literally spend all day at the range, putting green, practice green playing this, that, and the other, each and every day. I spent, more time, I spent more time at Oakmont than I did at home. I just slept at home. And um, I've I worked very, very hard. And as it turned out, I ended up getting a, a golf scholarship to LSU. And I played there all four years. And in the four years, I missed one tournament in the four years and was team captain my last two years. And uh, David Toms was on that team my senior year. David was a freshman. I was a senior. And then, uh, you know, turned professional in 1987. I had a chance to make the U.S. Walker Cup team. I had a very good amateur career. And I uh, changed with the U.S. Walker Cup team, and I was an auditor on that team. And then I turned professional, and just, uh, you know, as you documented, from 1990 to 2003, I was either on the PGA Tour or what's now called the, the Web.com Tour. And now I'm actually right. a little bit of a second, second wind. I'm uh, actually playing some Champions Tour events this year. I've played two of, the, two of the six, really two of the five that, were, that are open events um, this year. Nothing, nothing great as of yet, but I'm playing well, just waiting for the numbers to show up.
0: That's fantastic. Good luck. Great. That's fantastic news. Um, yeah, it's fine, Bob. I want, it's fine. I want to talk a little bit about some some of the, you know some of the tournaments that you know, you played and that you won. Yeah, like I say, you, and you point out, you had a great run on the Hogan Tour back in the nineties. Broke through. You won the nineteen ninety one Fort Wayne Open at uh, at Brookwood Country Club. You know. A, that had to be a great throw for you to get the win. But B, that was, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana is where your father's from. He went to Purdue. So you sort of had, a, you know, an, an Indiana mojo behind you. you have a lot of support that week? And talk about winning that tournament.
1: Oh, absolutely. Look, there were, there were, there were you know, there were, in, in your life, you know, we all look back and we have, we have you know, things that are like, wow, that, that, that was a change. Wow, that, that, you know, that made me turn the corner. Um, as an amateur, uh, I won the Northeast Amateur up in up in Rhode Island, which was that time, it's one of those tournaments. There's about a half a dozen tournaments in, in amateur golf that get you instant recognition by the USGA for Walker Cup consideration. I won the Northeast Amateur in 1986. I won that by eight shots. That wow. was a seminal moment. And then 1991, another one was winning, winning the Ben Hogan tournament uh, in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I, I stayed with my cousin, David Christina, who lives there in Fort Wayne, and uh, at that time, the, the Hogan events, there were, were three-round tournaments. And so you would play a, you'd play a Pro-Am on Thursday, and the tournaments were Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, you know, you played practice rounds on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I remember that tournament in that um, I, was, I was hitting the ball very well going into it. Uh, my, the guy that I traveled with, Jeff Gallagher, who Jeff played on the PGA Tour, brother Jim Gallagher played on, you know, some Ryder Cups and some President Cups, this, that, and the other. Uh, Jeff and I traveled together a lot. and He had won the prior week in Cleveland. And that, for me, was one of those things like, well, if this guy can win, you know, we're, and we're close friends. We're still close friends. To like If Gal can do it, I certainly can do it. And so going into the week, I was playing very well. And I remember I shot 71, which was even par the first round. And then on uh, Saturday, I shot 66. And then Sunday, I shot 64 and got into a three-man playoff with guys named Jerry Anderson and Dennis Trixler and myself. And we played one and eighteen, one and eighteen. On the eighteenth hole, of the, the second time around, fourth extra hole, um, I hit a sandwich in there about a foot and a half and made it. And you know that was just one of those things where, you know, as Jack Nicklaus said, winning breeds winning. And you know what it did? It just it just gave me a tremendous amount of confidence uh, for the remainder of the year. And then uh, you know the, the later in the fall, um, I went to Q School, uh, got all the way obviously got to all the way to the finals. And at Q School, it literally, I mean, I, I think I, if I go back and I take a look at it, I probably, I probably hit about 85% of the greens that week at Greenleaf and just breezed through, got my card easily. And that was the first time I got my card in the PGA Tour. Um, but, it, again, that, that win in 1991 was a springboard to that. And, um, yeah, it was, it was great. There were a lot of people out there. My dad grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, there was a lot of support out there because, you know, as you know, everybody there was familiar with my father's career and everything else and I was just getting started. So um, tremendous amount of support, great crowds, great golf course, and it was just, again, it was just, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing is nothing is better than winning.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And you know, talk about winning, particularly on that on that course, uh, as I was doing some research about the Fort Wayne Open had a rich history. It used to be a tour stop back in the 50s. Guys like Lloyd Mangrum, Art Wald, uh, Doug Ford, Dal Finsterwald, all won there. Arnold Palmer actually played his first professional Tour, they got his first paycheck, 145 dollars, back in 1955 when he played there. So yeah, you're in some solid company as a champion on that course.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's a wonderful, wonderful place, a great experience, and you know that you know to this day, you know the Web.com Tour is everybody's familiar. I mean, the the Web.com Tour, Hogan Tour, Nationwide Tour, Nike Tour, um, it, it produces it produces great players, and it's a wonderful bellwether as to see whether a guy can continue competing at the highest level or whether it's time to become, you know, an insurance salesman or a financial advisor or a doctor (laughs) or whatever. And, um, you know, you learn a lot. You learn how to travel. You learn how to compete. You learn how to, you know, to to be out there for, you know, 30 weeks a year. Um, You know, you've got to be in good shape. You've got to be mentally tough. You've got got to know how to time your schedule. You've got to kind of pay attention to your your practice and, and whatnot so you're not wearing yourself out. And so by the time Sunday comes around, you still have some gas left in the tank. And, right. um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, again, it was just a, a great experience. And I think that, uh, you know, as I said, my my biggest regret is that I, I should have won on the PGA Tour. I got very close. Um, I lost a sudden death playoff uh, to Billy Andre in the 1998 Bell Canadian Open at Glen Abbey. Um, I played well. It's one of those things where uh, I thought it was my week, Billy thought it was his week, and one of us had to be wrong. And, um, <laughs> you know, we I shot... Uh, you know, I shot 69-67, uh, and I had grabbed the lead after the, the second round. And then I shot 68 on the third round, and I still had the lead by two. And, uh, you know, went out the last round and was a little bit nervous. I ended up fashioning a 100-par 71. And, um, you know, Billy, he caught me, he made about a 45-foot putt in the 72nd hole, and he beat me in the first hole of sudden death there on the 18th hole at the Abbey. But, uh, wow. you know, I look back at it, and I, I should have won on the PGA Tour. I definitely had the game. Um, but I look back at it, and uh, similar to what my father had always told me and what my father, some of my father's mistakes were, was that I, for the most part, I tried too hard. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'm trying to do right now when I go on I'm, again. I'm, uh, hopefully my next Champions Tour event will be the senior PGA Championship at Harbor Shores in Benton Harbor, Michigan. That is, uh, I I'd likely have made enough money on the Champions Tour this year to qualify for that tournament. And so one of the things that I'm really trying to do is to, to not try so hard. I've, I've worked with Bob Rotella for about 20-some years on the mental aspect of the game. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he tells me is to try to not try. Because I'm a grinder, uh, I'm <laughs> yeah. a hard charger, I'm a very intense guy, and the hardest thing for me is to, kind of, is to kind of gear it down a little bit and back off and to kind of, you know, just relax and kind of let things take care of themselves. That's very hard for me to
0: do. I imagine. Now, Bob, you played in four U.S. Opens, 84, 88, 94, 99. Uh, yeah. 99 was at Pinehurst Number 2. Obviously, that's where it's going to be played this year. I uh, wanted to get your perspective. What did you think of Pinehurst Number 2, and uh, who do you like going into this year's tournament?
2: Well,
1: uh, that's correct. I did. I, I, I did. I played in four U.S. Opens poorly, I might add. The neat one was I got to play at Oakmont, my home course. And right. I actually got to use my own locker during the tournament, which was kind of fun. Uh, but look, Pinehurst. When I played in 1999, it was here the Payne Stewart one, beat uh, right. Phil Mickelson by a shot. Um, Pinehurst was a different golf course then. Cor and Rancher have come back in, and they have really removed the, the rough. They have broadened the golf course, but they have brought in more sandy areas, more of the natural, the more of the natural native grasses there. So the golf course is not going to have a whole lot of rough. But if you hit the ball offline, you're going to be in those native sandy areas, which makes it very difficult. Pinehurst. Um, You know, at the time, when I played it, it was narrow, had a lot of heavy Bermuda rough. The greens were fast. The interesting thing I remember about Pinehurst was that um, the temperatures never got really, really sweltering hot. Um, It always seemed like there was like a little bit of a fog layer or whatnot to keep the temperatures relatively cool. The interesting thing about Pinehurst is that those greens over the years, they're Donald Ross greens, which are basically built like helmets. They're really, you've got to make sure that you keep the ball below the hole, Anything that goes long, you really have a very difficult up and down. Greens, when they were originally designed by Donald Ross, were probably rolling about seven and a half to eight, and now you've got green speeds of twelve to thirteen, which makes the greens right. really, really scary. One, um, it was it was kind of interesting. You know, I, I missed the cut, and I was my locker was right next to next to Steve Flesch, and he had missed the cut. He came and slammed his hat down, and whatnot. And we were talking. He said, how'd you do, Friendly? I, just, oh, I said, I'm going to miss. I said, I, I shot, uh, I think I shot, what I shoot? I think I shot like 77, 73 or something like that. And, you know, I said, how would you shoot? He said, I'm going to miss by one. And then Bob Tway showed up. We started talking, and I said, what did you think? What do you think of the golf course? And, and Tway said, you know, he said, it's a neat golf course. He said, but this is what I don't like about it, the way that the greens are built and the speed of the greens, the speed of the collectionaries all around. He said, you know, he said, you and I could be playing, and he said, I could hit a shot. You know, 15 feet from the hole, and ball hits, kicks a little right, starts rolling. Next thing you know, ends up in this big collection area. He says, "You could hit." He says, "You could hit it 30 feet right of the green, and our balls end up in the same place." He says, "I don't know if I necessarily like that." And when I thought back about it, I thought that is kind of, kind of, kind of true. And then that was really the only area on the U.S. Open golf course, even a PGA Tour course. Um, did I really notice that, yeah, that the bad shot and a, and a relatively good shot really end up in the same place. That being said, um, I think the golf course is going to, it's, I think it's going to favor guys that hit the ball a long way. I think you've got to take a hard look at a Keegan Bradley. You've got to take a hard look at a Rory McIlroy. Um, I think a guy like a Graham McDowell could do very well there. Um, you know, I, I don't it looks like Tiger Woods is not going to be in the mix. I think that even right. if he was able to play, he's not going to be sharp enough to be in the mix. But I would take a hard look at a guy like Rory McIlroy. I know it's, it's kind of a cliche anymore, but, you know, this kid reminds me a lot of Sam Snead um, in terms of Sam Snead. Um, yeah, Sam Snead has had that long, long athletic golf swing and a very, very smooth transition into power. And Roy McElroy has something that's very similar to him. He's got a very, same thing, he's got a very long, I wouldn't call it a lazy swing, but he's got a very nice, smooth transition into power into the left-hand side, So into the left side. So I do believe that McElroy is going to be a force to contend with for a very long time. I think his body is going to hold up, and he hits the ball a long, long way. And he's won the Open, as we all know. He won a congressional there a few years ago. So I think Roy McElroy is going to be a very, very tough guy to beat there. I think it's a golf course that's going to allow some of the guys that drive the ball a little bit longer, that drive the ball maybe a little bit looser, uh, to have more of an opportunity as opposed to playing a place like Oakmont or Congressional or Olympic, where if you get a little loose with the driver, you're in the heavy U.S. Open rough, and you really just don't have much of an opportunity. A lot of the things that they're going to see here at Pinehurst this year is going to be you know, kind of a roll of the dice. If you miss the fairway and end up one of the sandy areas, you can end up with a great lie, or you can end up in absolutely, you can end up in a footprint, you can end up behind one of the native grasses. So it's really going to be a roll of the dice once the ball leaves the fairway. But I think it's going to really favor guys that hit the ball a long way. And uh, so I would take a hard look again. I think that Roy McIlroy is going to be a pretty good bet there, and Keegan Bradley as well.
0: All right. We've got uh, our next guest, Tony Jacklin, hanging on the line, Bob. But before I let you go, um, you're the director of operation of Pikewood National Golf Club now, a private course up in Morgantown, West Virginia. I took a look at the, the uh, video tour of the course. It's fantastic. What a, what a spectacular layout. Talk a little bit about that course, and uh, I've I got to imagine uh, it, it's got to end up being on the PGA Tour at some point, point. one of America's top 100 greatest courses I saw was named by Golf Digest.
1: Well, here's what we have. It's a golf course, and we designed it ourselves. I was on the design team for the front nine, which is the second nine that we built, and the golf course is at 2,300 feet. It's built on top of a mesa, so on top, aside from being a mountain course, it's relatively flat because it's all on top of a mesa. On a clear day, you can see 60 air miles, and it's big. It's got a slope wow. of 155 from all the way back. Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's it's wall-to-wall bent grass. It's a national club. It's a private club, um, but it's... it's it, when we first built it when it first came out with all 18 holes, in 2009 it was named the best new private course in America by Golf Digest. In 2013, the first year of eligibility came out ranked 45th in the United States. And this past year, in January, by Golf Digest, came out ranked 74th in the world out of 36,000 golf courses that were, wow. were polled. So there's a tremendous golf course. It's, we've got lodging on the property, big range, uh, 325 yards by 120. 120 yards wide. We have fishing uh, all along the property, and in the in the in the wintertime we do uh, sporting plays. So we love the Second Amendment. Uh, firearms are uh, more than welcome at PikeWood National Golf Club, but the golf course is uh, it has, has a very similar feel to a Pine Valley and to a Cypress Point, and it is uh, it is tremendous property. And um, it is, as I said, as you said, the website, PikeWoodNational.com, is tremendous. And uh, you know, we've the club has grown each and every year.
0: Yeah, it's magnificent. Congratulations on that thing. It's, uh, it's something to see. I highly encourage everyone to go take a look at it, because when you see the video tour, you, your mouth is going to hang open like mine did. It's fantastic. It Bob, is thanks, fantastic. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for taking time out of your morning to be a part of the show. Good luck on the Senior PGA Tour. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. So much more to get into with you that just didn't have enough time, but I'd love to uh, you know continue the conversation, and uh, we'll be following you on the, PGA, the Senior PGA Tour.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It was a pleasure talking to you. And again, thanks to all of our men and women serving in the United States and around the world. I cannot thank you enough for your service. But uh, great talking to you, Chris.
0: I'll talk to you anytime. All right. Thanks, Bob. All the best. Thank you very much. All right. Now we're going to get to uh, our next guest, uh, Tony Jacqueline, just on the other side of this real quick station break.
1: You're listening to On the Tee with Chris Mascaro on the Armed Forces Radio Network.
0: Next on the tee is former U.S. and British Open champion and successful Ryder Cup captain Tony Jacklin. Mr. Jacklin turned pro at age 17 back in 1962. In 1968, he became the first European player to win on the PGA Tour since the 1920s at the Jacksonville Open Invitational. A year later, he won his first major at the Open Championship at Royal Litham in St. Anne's in 1969. 1970, he won the U.S. Open at Hazeltine, becoming the first British player to win the U.S. Open since Ted Ray back in 1920. 1985, he captained the European team to a Ryder Cup victory, which marked the first loss by the U.S. team since 1957, backed that up with a second consecutive Ryder Cup uh, championship in '87, marking the first ever U.S.A. loss on American soil. He would go on to make it a three-peat for Europe in 1989. In 2002, he was elected to the World Golf Hall of Fame, and in 2006, he and Jack Nicklaus opened the Concession Club in Bradenton, Florida, commemorating the putt conceded by Mr. Nicklaus to Mr. Jacklin, which ensured the 69 Ryder Cup competition would end in a draw. He's won eight times on the European Tour, four times on the PGA Tour, and twice on the Senior PGA Tour, and I'm very honored to have him as a part of the show this morning. Mr. Jacklin, thank you for being here.
2: My pleasure, Chris. Nice to be with you.
0: I want to start with the beginning, in mind, Mr. Jacklin. If you don't mind, what sparked your interest originally in the game of golf?
2: Well, uh, when I was about nine in 1953, when Hogan had his great year, I was nine years old, and uh, a neighbor came to my father. I can remember him talking over the sort of fence and said he'd tried golf and he thought my dad might like uh, going and. Uh, My dad went out there and uh, he was smitten the first time he ever went and it wasn't long before I was pulling his trolley around and having a go myself uh, when we were away from the sort of members' eyes and uh, I I took it up right there. I was self-taught, based everything around fundamentals. Hogan was a great inspiration in the early days. I looked sort of, although I never... Uh, saw him play. I played with him, got to play with him in 1970. But in those days, it was uh, all from magazines, you know, pictures in magazines Mm -hmm. and and, uh, dreams, really, I suppose.
0: Wow. Now, I saw an interview you did several years ago regarding your Open Championship uh, victory, and you said overall your thought process was to stay close, stay in the hunt, and you never knew maybe the fourth round it would be your day. What would you tell yourself as you were sitting on a two-stroke lead heading into the final round? You had guys like Nicholas and Peter Thompson, Roberto DiVincenzo, Bob Charles uh, chasing you down. But what was your thought process as a guy who held a two-stroke lead going into a final round of an open championship?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's all a mental. Uh, you need a great mental fortitude, and, and uh, there's no substitute for... Experience there. Um, If I hadn't won uh, in Jacksonville in '68, I I managed to pull that first uh, tour. Went off uh, in '68, playing alongside uh, Arnold Palmer and Don January in the last round. So, you know, that was when Arnold was uh, in his pomp, if you like. And Mm -hmm. that was, uh, you know, mentally it was a a big thing to overcome. you know, the pressure and heat there and and win that tournament. And it was a stepping stone to be able to do uh, win win my first major, you know, getting into that last round with a two shot, the the key is with all of this is not getting ahead of yourself. And we, we, we all have heard it so many times, you know, staying in the moment. Uh, But the thing is, the more you want something, the more difficult it is to stay in the moment. And so it's it's a tremendous uh mental discipline and uh you know i remember being so darn nervous you know that you've got to wait until two thirty or so in the afternoon to, for your tea time so you've got to occupy yourself all morning without sort of trying to wonder what's going to happen when you get out there it's uh it's a nerve-wracking deal and uh but you I know back. i was young and i was fit and uh as I say, I, I, I started playing the tour when I was 19. I played in my first Open. Actually, that was at Lytham in '63 when Bob Charles won, and I managed to uh, make the cut there. So, you know, it was a golf course I, I kind of enjoyed. Uh, but it, it's tough, you know, it's, uh, it's getting it done. But that's just the, the key to it all is, is just staying with the program and uh, not getting ahead of yourself. Easy to say, imagine, and hard to do. <laughs> yeah,
0: no doubt. I mean, I mean, part of it I think played into it. I also heard you say that the inspiration you needed was given to you by the fans. You could tell that they really cared, right? So you're you're in front of your home fans, playing in that tournament. Uh, that's got to be an, an additional piece to try to keep your mind, you know, well, you know focused, yeah, if you will.
2: Yeah, it was. But but you know, the thing was I was playing full time on the uh, PGA Tour here then. And, you know, the fact that I was doing nicely and, but, you know, I didn't get many followers over here. I got a few, but, you know, Palmer and Nicholas took the the vast bulk of the galleries with them. And so when I went home to to play that uh, summer, you know, the galleries turned out to see me and it was inspiring. You know, I mean, obviously I was on the top of my game and uh, but right. it was a great uh, a great lift to know that the whole lot of people cared about what I was trying to achieve
0: so what's it like when they when they hand you the claret jug <laughs> i mean I, I got to imagine the emotion starts has got to start pouring out of you at that moment
2: yeah well it's uh you know it's it's tough to explain that it's uh, your dream come true obviously and the oldest championship and your your own uh, your, you know, your own country's uh, uh, biggest major. It, uh, it was fantastic. And uh, Ironically, I'm actually still the last Englishman to win uh, the Open in England. Uh, uh, you know, Fowler all right. won all his majors in Scotland, and Sandy Lyle is Scottish. He won at Sandwich. So that's one little record that will uh, uh, hopefully get bro- broken before I... <laughs> pop my clogs as they say but no it was euphoric it's um it's it's hard to get your head around it the reality doesn't properly sink in for actually months you know i mean it's uh, you, you you've got that with you for the rest of your life you know you know you're the open champion you are the open champion it's uh, it's huge
0: yeah, I, I got, I'm just trying to get into my head. I'm thinking, when you walk away from the course, you get to keep that thing for the year, right? So when you go back to where you're staying, you propping that thing up and just sort of looking at it in amazement. Do you sleep with it? What do you, What do you do with it?
2: <laughs> no, you know they've got a couple. They've, they've got a couple of identical trophies at the r and I think one stays at the R&A, uh, but I had it for a year, and uh, you know, little did I know that before that year ended that I was going to win the U.S. Open and I have, have the two right. of them together. So, um, no, I just kept it at home. And, uh, you know, the irony was I didn't get that many photographs taken. I mean, we're into the digital age now where everybody's taking selfies and doing this, that, and the <laughs> other with, with phones. Right. I, I promise you I only had uh, a very few uh, Pictures taken with it, you know, uh, back then it was a the sort of thing you never thought that much about. But um, it was uh, it was very special, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't give those majors up for all the world. It was, uh, you no know, doubt. you look back on a career. I, I I played for many years all over the planet, and uh, to be able to say that I won two of the biggies is, uh, makes me feel uh, good inside.
0: I'm sure. As you mentioned, the following year you won the U.S. Open at Hazeltine. Opening round play was, you know, very windy conditions. You shot 71 while guys like, you know, Gary Player shot 80, Jack Nicklaus 81, Arnold Palmer shot 79. Is that, you know, based on all your experience having played over in windy and rainy and, you know, the conditions that you have there over in England and Scotland, was that the benefit or was it something else? Oh, yeah,
2: no, there's no doubt. I was weaned on that stuff, you know, the wind, and I I sort of uh, enjoyed playing uh, in those days in in that kind of weather and uh, certainly got me off to uh, a a fast start, and I was the only one to break par the first day. And and I very much, ever since then, and, you know, I'm asked often about who I fancy for this tournament or that tournament or who's going to win. Uh, this or that and really it's that first round to me is very important, you can't win it in the first round but you can lose it and uh, if you can shoot a good first round you're, you're mentally straight away engaged in that thing it's it's something, I don't know it, it, It's it's, uh, it's something I've watched and I've talked to other great players about that first round is very important to get your mental juices flowing and catch your attention and, you know, and you really start thinking, you know, two or three more rounds like this and I could win. Uh, So the first round is uh, ultra important as far as I was concerned. And and of course, it got my attention there and I managed to hang on. I I increased my lead every day. Right. One by seven in the end. It was was a week to dream about. And uh, for me, the U.S. Open is probably the hardest uh, tournament major to win because the USGA really do take it to the limits, you know, with regards to the course setup and so on. So, um, no, I I mean, I've looked looked back over 50 years of playing this game for a living, and uh, that was the week uh, to end all weeks. I mean, I I really, really uh, had the perfect week that week.
0: So, you know, you've talked earlier about, you know, staying in the moment and the mental focus. This was sort of on the opposite side. To your point, you won that tournament by seven strokes, and we've seen in the past some, you know, leaders, some great players who had a, you know, four, five, six-stroke lead going into a final round and give it all back. Maybe they relaxed. Maybe they lost some focus. You didn't. How were you able to, from the opposite <laughs> way, keep keep yourself together with that big of a lead?
2: Well, it wasn't as easy as it looked, funnily enough. Uh, you know, with a four-shot lead, I was never more nervous in my life, I can tell you, of going out into a final round because I figured if I don't get this done, I'm going to be labeled as a choker and it, it would be
0: right. you know,
2: something to live with the rest of my life. So uh, uh, those first uh, few holes went fine. And in the middle of the round, I missed a three-foot putt on the, on the eighth On the 7th, I hit a 4-iron into about 3 or 4 feet and missed it. And then I 3-putted the next hole, and I'd been putting beautifully all week. And on uh, 9, I had about a 35-footer upper slope, and I hit this putt far too hard. And it hit the back of the hole. It could have run straight over the hole. It was going so fast. It hit the back of the hole, jumped in the air, and decided to go in. And when that happened, it was like, I just felt the pressure roll away. And, uh, uh, you know, I got myself together and on the back nine and made some birdies and, but the the pressure was sort of off. It was almost like a, a switch went on, you know, it was, um, but up until that point, it could have gone any which way, you know, I could have just as easily gone. And if that ball hadn't gone in, who knows what might've happened the last round. Uh, anyway, okay. we won't go there. I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was uh, euphoric. It really was. Uh, I made a 30-footer on the left screen. I was saying yep. to myself, stood over the putt, you know, what a way to end this would be if I could just make this. And I'm thinking it, I'm doing it. And and that is what, you know, staying in the moment is, you know, being in the moment is. It's, uh, it's a great feeling. There's nothing like it when you're... Uh, you know a pro pro golfer out there it 's a state of mind that uh, it 's not easy to achieve it 's almost like you 've got to go through a a nervous state uh, state of mind to get to the other side uh, if that makes any sense and you, mm-hmm. you get into this sort of cocoon of concentration where nothing can touch you you know as you, you 're just sort of doing what you do best and uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a hell of a feeling, and uh, uh, you know you can't always get there. Mm-hmm.
0: So, let's talk a little bit about your Ryder Cup experiences. You had an amazing run as the Ryder Cup captain. The victory in 1985 at the Pelfrey, the first European win since 1957. You talk about euphoric on your end for winning the tournament, winning at the Open, winning at the U.S. Open. Was this a euphoric of a different nature, being able to you know bring that victory home and bring it to uh your you know to Europe?
2: Yeah, it was very different. You know, I was young when I won my majors. I was 25. Uh, you, you couldn't captain a Ryder Cup team at that point in time. Uh, you know, by the time the opportunity came along in the Ryder Cup, I was. Uh, thirty-eight or nine, and, uh, uh, timing is everything, um, in life. Uh, I, I, you know, I'd played seven times, and, uh, we'd turned, we'd gone from Great Britain and Ireland in, uh, in, uh, 79. That was my last year as a, as a, as a player. We went from Great Britain and Ireland to Europe, and in, included Europe, and, um, it didn't seem to make much difference. The first, uh, you know, in in, 80, in in 79 and 81, we got beat just as badly as we were getting beat in the sort of 60s and 70s. And uh, but, you know, I felt I knew what we were lacking, and it was it was basically professionalism. I mean, uh, we were being sent off to Ryder Cups by administrators who, you know, they didn't? they weren't golfers, and they didn't know what it was like to stand over a four-foot putt to, to win anything. And, uh, you know, we were flying in the back of the bus economy, and Americans were going on Concord first class. They were all turned out like Adonises when it came to the team photographs, and we were wearing anything anybody would give us. And, <laughs> you know, when they asked me to do this thing, um, I, I was in a situation where I'd sort of fallen out with uh, some of the, um, you know, the hierarchy, the people in Europe, European Gulf that uh, were running the thing. And I didn't care really whether I did it or not. And it was an opportunity, to, so I said, I said you know, I'll do it if I can do it on my own terms. And, and I started making these requests, you know, just to be level of playing field basically you know let's right. we need to go first class self-esteem when you're a professional is is very important you know you need we needed to know i needed to know that we could stand on the first tee and we were even prior to that we were always the underdog we always looked worse for wear uh, you know the americans were two up before um, a stroke was played in terms of just the way they turned out and uh So, once we got those things straightened out, and uh, people won't remember this, but Seve Barristeros was arguably the best player in the world at that time, and they banned him from playing in 1981 uh, uh, because of appearance money issues with the tour, and, and, and we won't go there, but my first job was to bring him back into the fold because, you know... He was he was something else I mean he I knew I couldn't uh, do it without Sevis help and it was it wasn't easy but uh, you know I told him his his PR was uh, wasn't you know he wasn't enjoying the best press in Europe at the time right. and uh, I said if we can get this done you know I'm going to do everything I can off the course, but I can't do it without you on it and uh, he responded and 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 all the players responded with. You know what we what we did you know we we, we went on concord as, as i say in 83 to palm beach gardens which was my first time and um we came within a whisker of getting it done i mean lanny wadkins considered a wonderful wedge on the last hole stone dead to be Canizares, and that meant we got beaten by a point uh, and for everything that last afternoon it looked like we were um, we were going to take it, and we were very disappointed. I have to say, you know, we were all, you know, banking on on a victory because it looked very much that way all that afternoon. But um, I think it was Sevy in fact, that that said, you know, this is not a loss; it's a victory. You know, it's the first time we've ever done anything like this in America, and, uh, and you know, so two years rolled round to '85. We took uh, that as a stepping stone to being able to get it done on home turf. You know, we got a lot of support from the British fans. And, uh, well, you know, the rest is history. But it was essentially getting that, um, the basics sorted out, you know, and uh, right. the players' self-esteem, they all felt uh, that they were equal to the task. And since then, I mean, uh, we look back and, of course, Europe of come out on top uh, more often than the U.S., but uh, it's always right. close, and, and that's the most important thing for me. It will go back and forth, you know, and that's and it, and it should, but it's at least a, a contest now, and, and we look forward to it immensely. It's uh, caught the public imagination. Um, you know, outside of the Olympic Games and the World Cup soccer, it's about the biggest team thing out there. Uh, right. Which is uh, you couldn't say that much back in 1983 because I, I think only the local ABC station took the Ryder Cup. Now it's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's unbelievable how it's changed.
0: Uh, Absolutely, we, we had
2: the gala dinner in '83 in Jack's backyard, right on the intercoastal there in, in Palm Beach. I mean, think about doing that there now with uh, the the attention that the Ryder Cup gets. It's uh, right. extraordinary.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your relationship with Mr. Nicholas. Let's start with the concession at the uh, at the 69 Ryder Cup. You talk about you know uh, those competitions being close. It was the first Ryder Cup that ended in a draw, which meant that the U.S. would keep the cup. But you played against Mr. Nicholas as part of the morning four ball matches on Friday, and you and Neil Cole's beat Mr. Nicholas and uh, Dan Sykes one up. You beat. Mr. Nicholas, four and three in the Saturday morning singles matches, and then in the afternoon matches is what uh, you guys have. So, um, you know, Mr. Nicholas had always talked about, you know, the thought of the overall match, you know, was going to be, you know, this is an exhibition. This is, you know, this is something that, you know, helped promote the game of golf. And there was no way that he wanted you to miss a two-foot putt in front of your home crowd and the fans uh, to cost European, you know, the opportunity to win the Ryder Cup. But were you shocked? When uh, when uh, he uh, picked up your ball mark, uh,
2: I was I was I was surprised. Uh, uh, there was an, an element of relief there as well, I have to say. But uh, you know, I'd, I'd won the Open a couple of months before, and I was pretty well prepared mentally. And I knew whatever happened, I'm going to have to make this putt. You know, he'd he'd hit his approach putt four and a half feet by, and like the great player he is, he he held the return and. Uh, in doing, in picking his ball out of the hole, he picked my marker up, and and he said, "I don't think you would have missed it, but I would never give you the opportunity in these circumstances." Which was a great act of sportsmanship. We were friends and 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 all that, but we were competitors too, and um, he he always saw the big picture, Jack. And of course, America retained the trophy that they won right. in '67. Uh, so from that point of view, but. Um, no, he, he, you know, he, he always played the game the right way, Jack. I mean, uh, we we've had a, a nearly fifty-year friendship now, and uh, we see. Uh, I shall see him next week. Actually, we've got a big event at the concession, the Concession Cup. We've got all the great amateurs coming from the UK and Ireland against uh, some of the great American amateurs. So we're having a a grand occasion where we're, we're both uh, honorary captains of our respective teams. So I shall see him this coming week. But, um, you know, the course, the course came about, uh, I'd finished playing my senior career and I was sort of looking for something to do. And Jack was being courted by, uh, the Ritz Carlton in Sarasota to do the golf component. And, uh, I went and found a developer and showed him this picture of us coming off the 18 screen at uh, Birkdale in 69, and uh, I said, you know, what about a concession golf course, you know, if if there's maybe more than one, or, anyway, it didn't happen straight away, but the guy, the developer loved the idea, and we eventually got it done and got it opened in 2006, and it's uh, turned out fantastic. Uh, we've got a vibrant membership now, and some good players. We've got Paul Azzinga and is uh, he's, he's an honorary member out there, and uh, Andy Bean, David Ledbetter plays out there. We've got uh, we've just um, wow. got JB Holmes has just bought a home out there, so he's going to be based there. Scott Hokes playing so. A lot of good players and uh, vibrant, hey. that's a vibrant club, it, It's uh, and it's a fantastic test.
0: How how do your designs, you know, your your philosophy of course design and his philosophy of course design, how do those two things compare and how did it come together?
2: Well, you know, at the time we did it, I was actually prepared to bow to Jack's uh, greater experience in, in course design. Obviously, he's got a great team behind him and so on. And he said, no. Um, he said, if we're going to do it, let's do it together. And he said, that's another concession, <laughs> so, <laughs> which, which was uh, yeah, quite funny. But uh, what we agreed on was that, you know, we didn't want the Greens too big. We wanted it to be challenging, the, the Greens to be challenging. I personally didn't like bulk uh, bulkheading, uh, you know, a la the TPC at, uh, Sawgrass I, I, I don't care for that You know A shot just short Is punished by You know And so we agreed on, on, on Most of it But it was Fairly fundamental We had enough land To get the Par threes moving In different directions We could balance The uh, dog legs left And the dog legs right A couple of par fives You can get up on But it's a Challenge when you get To the greens and, and we agreed, you know, just on, on principles, and uh, then it was just a matter of uh, cutting the holes out. The the property was uh, very flat, old Florida, a lot of oak trees and pines, and uh, we gradually worked through it, you know, trying to retain some of the nicer trees and the, the bring them into play and the like of it, but uh, it turned out great, and... Uh, you know, I met him on each of his visits. He came in six or seven times, I suppose, during the construction, and uh, worked out great.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful looking golf course. I've looked at it online. It's fantastic. What a what a wonderful layout. Mr. Jacqueline, it's, uh, it's been an incredible privilege for me to get to uh, spend some time with you this morning. You had a wonderful list of achievements. You've had a great career. I thank you so much for taking time out of your morning uh, to be a part of the show. I hope you'll do it again sometime. So much to talk to you about. I'd love to continue to maybe get some more of your insights about the game and, and uh, keep the relationship going. But it's been an honor for me to have you as part of the show today.
2: You're, you're very kind, very welcome, and I'd just like to thank uh, all the troops out there for keeping us safe. We appreciate what they do, too.
0: Indeed. Thank you, Mr. Jacklin. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you, hopefully, real soon.
2: God bless you. Thank you.
0: All right. Good day. All right, everybody. My thanks to uh, Bob Friend, Jr. and Tony Jacklin for being such outstanding guests, and to our announcer, Joe Lajanousa, who always does such an outstanding job kicking the show off every week. I thank you for tuning in. Please also check out Thursday Night Tailgate with me and my co-host, Angelo Kane and Joe Lajanusa. You can hear us right here on the Armed Forces Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio every Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We're joined every week by the legends from around the NFL. We had Shane Nelson, Bill Moss, Devon McDonald, Birkdale, and uh, Terry Glenn with us this past week. So please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like there. That's important to us, too. You can find us, this, uh, this show, uh, online uh, next on, on uh, nextonthete.net and uh, our other show, Thursday Night Tailgate, online at thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes by going to both sites. So until then, until next week, uh, good night, Kevin. Keep fighting.
1: the choice of a crispy chicken blt to wendy's four for four is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing i got me out and i sound like a robot but do you like the sound of this wendy's four for four now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken blt from detroit to making a keep it crisp like bacon both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets fries and a coke for just four bucks
0: oh yeah
1: at participating wendy's for a limited time meal includes small fries and a drink not valid in alaska and hawaii
0: Great things are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better. Like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better.